2 Kings chapter 10 to 9 this evening. The title for this evening's message is License to Kill. And that is precisely what is happening in chapters 9 and 10. Next chapter, we will get to the deaths of devils, but this one is where it begins. And we have prophecy, we have anointing, we have treason, assassinations, chariots, eunuchs, flesh-eating dogs, war horses, and gravity. That's <laughs> which is going to really be one of the <clears throat> interesting ones. So it merits the introduction, this chapter 9, because it is joined to chapter 10. Jehu will be anointed king in Israel over Joram, who is presently king. Jehu kills Joram, and he also kills King Ahaziah of Judah, and then he kills Jezebel. And all because he's commanded to. It's judgment. He's God's instrument of judgment. He has this license to purge the house of Ahab from earth. And he was unstoppable. This instrument in the hand of God, swift, relentless, striking like lightning from point to point. This is Jehu. You, you, you like the man initially, and then you see how he treats God in, in response to this, and it just deflates the balloon. Everything goes right out. He's going to kill a few hundred people who should die. These were bad people. These were wicked people, spiritual parasites. And their loss was a good thing for Israel. Five times in this chapter, we'll hear the question, is it peace? Is it peace? Each time, it's the wicked asking or someone asking on behalf of the wicked. First king, Joram, will send a messenger to Jehu. Go ask him, is it peace? And the messenger will get to Jehu. Is it peace? And then a second messenger will be sent. Is it peace? <laughs> Jehu will say, what do you know about peace? Get in line. He just, you know, you, you like him as a man. And then Jehu uh, will be asked by Joram jo the king himself straight out, is it peace? And then he unloads on him. Uh, don't worry, Joram will get the point of Jehu's arrow. Then Jezebel sarcastically taunting Jehu, her final mistake, will ask, is it peace? And so it's interesting that the wicked want peace so they could do evil. This is a biblical teaching. They want to be left alone so they can menace the universe. That is what the wicked want. This is illustrated for us in the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 1, Jesus goes to a synagogue, the Jewish equivalent of our church, of at least the Christian church, <clears throat> and there is a man there with an unclean spirit, and Jesus calls him out. Pick it up in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 24, when Jesus comes in, the demon speaks to Jesus through the man, let us alone, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth, did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We always make the point that demons can identify God. It's just arrogant humans that have a hard time admitting, surrendering to the truth. 
But here it is. They, what is the, the first words out of their mouth? Leave us alone. That's what wicked wants. Wickedness wants to be left alone. Meanwhile, the same unclean spirit that spoke to Christ would not stop troubling that man that hosted them, that was stuck with them, that rendered him unclean before God. So the wicked do want peace so that they can pollute, infect, and contaminate, and they do it very well. The state of this man was contaminated because of these spiritual parasites feeding off of him. Those allied with Ahab in chapters 9 and 10 of 2 Kings, they too are spiritual and physical parasites, and that is why they're being judged. They will be eliminated from the top down. Now we look at verse 1. And Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready, take this flask of oil in your hand, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. Well, Elijah is delegating this. He's probably up in years, and it's going to require speed. His directive is going to essentially be preach it and beat it. And this literally, it is, when he calls the prophet, he said, get yourself ready. Literally, in the Hebrew, it is gird up your loins. The long garments that they commonly wore, you couldn't run in them. Uh, and so they would pull them up and tie them and so that they could have that freedom from the material to, to run. This instruction indicates that the message is urgent. It's sort of like saying, you know, get your body armor on. You know, you've got to gear up for what I'm telling you to do. Fortunately, we read of no resistance from the servant. He receives his orders and he acts on them. He says to go to Ramoth-Gilead, which is on the east side of the Jordan River, still Israel's territory. There are the battle lines because the Syrians have, with uh, Ben-Hadad, have come against, well, I think by this time it's Hazael who killed Ben-Hadad. He's coming against the Jews. He is an instrument of God to punish the northern kingdom for their idolatry. God warned. All of these things were warned, laid out plain as day. They didn't believe it, even though many of you know, it was happening on right before their eyes. Elisha, the prophet, and he, he sends this messenger to Jehu in private because he knows that it would set in motion the violent downfall of Ahab's house. And Jehu is just the man to know how to pull this off and avert a civil war at the same time. A lot going on there. You know, we tend to read this as though, you know, we get these verses and there's so much happening many times between the verses. And we'll cover this when he begins to start his killing spree. We'll find that there's a lot of stuff. You know, you have to go to other sections of the Bible and and figure it out. But anyway, we'll hopefully get to that. Verse 3, he's still giving his messenger instructions. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head. And say, thus says Yahweh, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not delay. Now, this is unfinished business going back 15 years with Elijah, Elisha's, of course, uh, teacher. Uh, This directive that is happening here to anoint Jehu. Meaning Elijah 
passed it to Elisha, and Elisha is now delegating it to the unnamed prophet, the servant of the prophet, from the school of the prophets. Of course, a lot of details left out. We don't need them. These are the facts. We have no reason to question the prophet's decisions to delay acting on this order of the Lord. The timing is perfect. It says here in verse 3, Then open the door and flee. Do not delay. And as I mentioned, he is to preach it, then beat it. As fast as he can. No greeting line. <laughs> what? No greeting line? I enjoy the greeting line. Well, you're going to, not to this day. <clears throat> so, verse 4. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. When he arrived, verse 5, there were the captains of the army sitting. And he said, I have a message for you, commander. Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you. So he singles out the, uh, the biggest, the highest in rank of the commanders. Of course, when it says captain, we might think in terms of an army captain, but these are higher-up commanders, and Jehu's commander over all the army, more like generals, or, well, let's just go to verse 6, because that's why I like to talk about these things. I like to talk about the military. I just don't want to go back in. So... Um, verse 6, Then he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of Yahweh over Israel. So God has not abandoned Israel. He's reasoned to, but he does have a remnant there, and he's still reaching out to them. And all anointings are God doing the anointing with his servants as the vessels. Oil anointings, which this is, like water baptisms, they're unmistakable. There's not going to be any doubt. Now, Jehu's going to try to play this off, which I don't even know why he tries. Now, usually, if we go by Psalms, the oil is poured on the head and it runs down. It's, it's you know, a big deal. I don't know, maybe this servant of the prophet is not a seasoned prophet at anointing people. Maybe he gives them a little bit of oil. Either way, when he steps out, it's going to show. He probably tries to rub it in. You know, your hair wasn't shiny like that a minute ago. What, what happened? So let's look at verse 7. And he, this is the prophet giving the orders to Jehu, who from God's perspective is now king in the north. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, <coughs> your master, verse 7, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of Yahweh at the hand of Jezebel. Verse 8, for the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off Ahab, all the males in Israel, both bond and free. And God means every bit of it. All of Ahab, males in Israel, both bond and free, will be eliminated. So this is an official and a divine order, a directive to Jehu, who is now king. Here is his license to kill as an instrument of judgment. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And what we're seeing, this is about he's setting it up. That's what's going, going to happen. This goes back years ago when Elijah... First tells Ahab, you're going to be judged, and the dogs are going to eat Jezebel. 
which, you know, Ahab was sad about. Jehu and Bidkar, evidently a, on, a fellow officer came up with, within the ranks with them. They were there for that. We're gonna, they're going to repeat this. We, we were there. Who knew we'd be instruments of God to do this? How exciting. Well, it wasn't exciting to them, it appears. They, I mean, it, it struck them, but it, you would think they would just love on Yahweh for all that he is doing here is miraculous. Well, uh, we would have expected after such an anointing that Jehu would be valiant for Yahweh, and he was not. And so again, to review this purging that's coming. He kills Joram, the king of Israel, Ahab's grandson, with an arrow. As I mentioned, um, Ahab's grandson, Joram, gets the point. He kills Azariah, king of Judah, on command. That was a little more sloppy because Jehu wasn't the one shooting, firing the arrow. When he fired the arrow, it went right through the heart. He gives an order to his, uh, I guess, the charioteer with him. And uh, Ahaziah survives for a little bit until they finally hunt him down and finish him off. Anyway, um, he's going to, of course, kill Jezebel on command commands, he says, who is with me, who? And they say, here we are, and throw her down. Uh, gravity is what did her in, along with the steed of Jehu. He kills on command 70 sons of Joram, the current king. He killed uh, Ahab's associates, <laughs> those in his court. <clears throat> and he is going to kill on command 42 brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, perhaps exceeding his directive, but they were rotten anyway. He's going to set up the prophets of Baal. So let's pretend we worship Baal, uh, Baal, and, and they're going to. And that's how they're going to find out who really likes Baal, and they're going to kill him after that. So that's the next chapter, though. So, verse nine. You love the Old Testament, don't you? Go ahead, say it. <laughs> uh, Where. Again, when I said he, he exceeded his directive, his executions were not as zealous for Yahweh as we might think. We get that in chapter 10. They're marred by this. He sort of enjoys it, and he wants this power. And, and he still is going to worship, you know, the golden calves up in Bethel. And, and just he just messes up everything. You know, I don't know that we'll see these guys in heaven. If we do, you just want to say, what was your problem? And how'd you get up here? No, <laughs> I won't say anything like that. Verse 9. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. Well, the people called to be Yahweh's people, a spiritually armed people, they were spiritually armed with the law and the prophets, which was expanding in, in their lifetime, as we are spiritually armed with the Bible, the Holy Spirit. This is the people of Yahweh. But they were as bloodthirsty in the north and in the south also, in their palaces, as the Caesars would be centuries later. I mean, the Caesars would just kill them one after another to take the power. And these were, they were doing the same thing here. Verse 10, 
The dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and booked. So he, <laughs> he fled as fast as he could. I would love to see a video of this. Somebody there with their phone up. Um, anyway, <laughs> no one's going to miss Jezebel. He's giving the specific orders. Actually, Jehu's going to unconsciously going to try to sidestep some of this, but he's not going to succeed. And not, I think again, he's unconscious when he, he does that. I, I meant uh, anyway. He says, and he opened the door and fled, following orders, no more, no less. This is critical. When messengers exceed their command, problems arise. The Bible teaches us this. Even as Christians, maybe God opens the door and you're preaching the gospel and then you, you know, it's getting good to you. You got your, your little pulpit in front of you. I have a bigger pulpit. But I know the problem. And you just have to learn to shut your mouth. Okay, the message has been delivered. Okay, well, even in prayer, you know, get a group prayer. Somebody goes on and on. I go out, get a milkshake, come back. They're still going. Maybe I got somebody. Maybe said that's me. We'll fix it. Uh, when you feel God's not feeding you anything to pray, shut your mouth. Best way to do it. Numbers chapter 20, verse 11. Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Yes, but God said, Moses, speak to the rock. And Moses, angry with the people, said, we'll give you water. What's this we stuff, right, Moses? And he strikes the rock. Now, you could imagine, he's got his rod, and he, he's, he's hitting this rock with enough force and anger, not too much to break the stick, but to let the people know he is unhappy. And God calls him out on it and tells him, you made me look like I was angry at the people. That was your problem, Moses. You've had this murder, I mean, this anger problem. Ever since you remember you murdered that guy? You got anger issues. So he set him up a session for counseling. And Moses never got better after that. Okay. He did not. So, because Moses did have an anger issue. Could you imagine him driving today on the road? With that rod out the window, smiting cars? Anyway, uh, God, of course, what was the punishment? It was pretty heavy. He couldn't go into the promised land for thousands of years. He did eventually get in. And he, he kind of whined to God. He went back, come on, let's talk about this. And God said, don't bring it up again. You, no. You've got to love that, the, the human element of that with, with God. And that's why these stories are there, for us to consider them, to learn how to pray. How do you learn how to pray? I, I just see, I look in the Bible, I see them talking to God, what's on their mind. Jeremiah is one of the best ones. You know, fussing with God and reverence. It's like, you, you know, you called me into ministry and you set me up. <laughs> well, he sets up all pastors, else none of them would go in. If he said, let me show you what you got. When he said to Paul, let me show you the things you must suffer, he, he dribbled it out. <laughs> he didn't give him one flash. Although Paul was made of such stuff, he probably would have been able to pull it off anyway. Anyway, back to verse. Sorry, did I offend anybody? Do you think that what, pastoring is just this fun thing? It does have its pleasures. And it does have its not so pleasures. Just like everything else, the curse is on every vocation by the sweat of your brow and the break of your heart. That's how things get done. And the men with the calling stick to it. They don't have a choice. 
Um, I, it's my role. If a man says I, I feel a calling to the pastorate, I'm going to try to talk him out of it. Well, uh, because that's my, my job I, as I see it. If God has called him, then I can't talk him out of it. If God has not called him, he'll be done after the first few minutes of me telling him what's coming. And that's how it should be. Well, back to, well, pause here. Because you know my belief is whatever is happening with the pastor in some degree happens within the congregation. So in the days of persecution, what do you tell people that you're trying to lead to Christ? You do the same thing, do you not? You sure you call to Christ? Because once you cross this line, get baptized, you're going to be a target. And we saw that, and we're seeing that in the book of Acts. In the days of persecution, people coming to church was magnified and multiplied. It's just being real with things. Verse 11, verse 9, 11. Then Jehu came out to the servants of his master, and one said to him, Is it well? Why did this madman come to you? And he said to them, You know the man and his babble. Ha uh-huh. ha. Well, how, again, when they say Jehu, then Jehu came out and the servants of the master, and one of them said to, said to him, is it well? Well, they knew something was afoot. I mean, I mean it just wasn't, okay, you met with a, a, the, one of the sons of the prophets. Okay, that was enough to stir them up. But also the way he looked. His countenance was likely thinking, trying to process all of this, and he had that oil on him somewhere. So, again, the prophet's assistant arrives. He speaks with the commander in private. He leaves in haste. They would have noticed that. I was like, did you see that guy move? And then, of course, um, some, some visible, visible changes from when he got up from the card table or whatever it was that they were doing. Why did this madman come to you? Said with a nervous laugh. You know, there are those that mock spiritual things with a nervous laugh. Jeremiah, Hosea, Paul, they were charged with insanity by the spiritually insane. Uh, The wicked don't appreciate people noticing and disliking their wickedness. They don't don't want you to, to, to call it what it is. You know, a liar hates being called a liar, even when he's caught lying. A thief hates being called a thief when they're caught stealing. Um, I mean, those who are really just impenitent. Anyhow, and he said to them, you know the man in his babble. So he's trying to brush it off. They were all nervous. They all knew something big was happening. I mean, you don't just go to a four-star general and meet with him in private and run out the room, and then the general comes out with a little oil in his hair and just go, well, whose deal was it? <laughs> I mean, you just don't go back to playing cards or, again, whatever it was they were doing. Likely not cards because they hadn't perfected making cardboard like that yet. I think the cowboy days, right? I don't know. Okay, back to this. Don't, don't correct me. I just saw something on this. And I don't remember and I don't care. <laughs> Verse 12. And they said... A lie. (laughs) Tell us now. So he said, thus and thus he spoke to me saying, thus says Yahweh, I have anointed you king king over Israel. That's all they heard, king over Israel. (laughs) But it's funny how they were comfortable enough with him to call him out and say, ah, come on, Jehu. 
That's, you know something's happening. Don't come out here telling us, hey, nothing happened. And so he says, okay, he told me I'm going to wipe out Ahab's family and do all of this stuff. I have a license to kill. See, here it is. And, and then, you know, <laughs> oh, by the way, I'm the king now. Well, this makes it clear that they knew the prophet was no madman. Because if they thought he was a madman, they would have said, who cares what he's meeting in there about? But they knew. They knew these prophets were the real thing. And so when, when they showed up, that was a nervous laugh. Oh, he's just crazy. Oh, you know, he babbles. Yeah, right. You wish. Uh, they do that. The evolutionists do that. Oh, it's just, you know, they talk about that creation stuff. Like, like they, this stuff is more hokey than anything. And as I said before, Carl Sagan, the pagan, he, uh, he came out and said, you know, we, we've abandoned evolution of the species, and now we're into evolution of the, like, the Martians or something. <laughs> so, he said, we, we, we were brought to Earth by, by alien life forms. And it's just a shame to see otherwise highly intelligent people be so absolutely dumb. And that uh, arrogance makes you stupid. We'll see that when we get to Jezebel in a moment. But anyway, verse 13. Uh, then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps. And they blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. I would like somebody to do that to me just once in my life and not be like a four-year-old. <laughs> a bunch of adults say, Rick is king. And anyway, uh, no, I really wouldn't. They act upon the word of the prophet because it suited them. I should, should add that. Had he convicted them, uh, they would have mocked him and insulted him. But they liked what he had to say because Jehu was the kind of guy that you just could get behind and serve. He was certainly a man's man and evidently an upstanding man. And we meet many of these types of people that are, are admirable throughout Scripture. Um, Lydia. Is, is one, you know, she had her own business and she just, you know, she pressed upon Paul and, the, and his party with Luke and just to stay with us. Don't just preach us and do us and go. And it's exciting. We'll come to her in Acts. Anyway, uh, this uh, <clears throat> is a, an attestment to his leadership ability. Verse 14. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now, Joram had been defending Ramoth Gilead, he and all Israel, against Hazael, king of Syria. Well, it's about 45 miles from Jezreel to Ramoth. Jehu is in Ramoth Gilead. Joram the king, who he's going to kill, is in uh, Jezreel, 45 miles away. And so he's processing this with his men. But I have to point out, I always, whenever I come to that name Nimshi, isn't that like a cute little name for a cat or you know, a little puppy or something? Look at my little Nimshi. Anyway... Uh, some of these names. It was not a biker name, you know. Nimshi out of, out of Cleveland or something. It just doesn't fit. Unless he's got a sword with him. Well, anyway, back to this. Verse 15. <laughs> but King... Make sure I'm not missing anything here. Yeah. So they're at the battle line with the Syrians. That's what he's pointing out because the king was injured. Verse 15. But... King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. 
Jehu said, if you are so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city to go tell it in Jezreel. So the king is in sickbay back in uh, Jezreel. That meant Jehu was the overall commander. And he tells the under commanders, if you're with me, if you have a mind for this, if you're with me, don't let anybody out of here. I'll take my, my guys with me. But don't let anybody go back and, and tell what's going to happen. This is top secret. And again, he's averting a civil war. Because if Joram jo gets word, jo, you know, uh, Jehu's coming for you, then he's going to arm himself, and uh, then it's going to be ugly. So during this 45 or mile or so trek back, he's processing all the killing he's going to do. He's got a lot. And he aims to do it all. He's that kind of a man. He, what he has is, in mind is a swift assassination at the head. The top dog goes first. And then he begins to work his way around. He doesn't go right to Jezebel, but he gets to her and she provokes him, thinking she, I don't know, maybe she thought she was you know, captivating him. We'll come to that. Verse 16. So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Well, um, Jehu's rise to ranks is probably also because he knew how to handle a chariot in war. It was, if we get to verse 20, was, he was evidently legendary at how he drove that chariot. King Ahaziah here in verse 16 is mentioned. He was the reigning king in Judah. He's a rat too. Spiritually, these guys, again, were just causing so much harm. And physically too. This Ahaziah, he cherished his family of devils. His wicked mother, Athaliah. She's going to wipe out her grandchildren so she can be king, a queen. Uh, his in-laws were Joram, who's up here in sick bay, Ahab, who's dead now, but stole the vineyard of Naboth, and, of course, Jezebel, who needs no introduction. Their god was Baal. They imported this god, this man-made god, and had no interest in Yahweh or his claims, unless it suited their purpose. It says here in verse 16, For Joram was laid up there, and Ahaziah the king of Judah had come down to see him. This visit is going to cost him his life. They are related uh, through marriage and uh, also allies in war. But because he's mixed up with this wicked Joram and his judgment, he's going to be collateral damage. Second Chronicles, which also chronicles this event, in the seventh verse says about Ahaziah, his going to Joram was God's occasion for Ahaziah's downfall. We pause there. So the historian in Chronicles is saying God was killing two kings with one stone. Jehu was the stone. And, then, and he says because he was wicked. He continues, for when he arrived, he went out with Jehoram against Jehu, the son of Nimshi. <laughs> who Yahweh had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. Now, it's again, that license to kill. So now we're back to Kings chapter 9, verse 7. Now, a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw a company of Jehu 
the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company of men. And Joram said, get a horseman and send him to meet them and let him say, is it peace? Well, he's probably thinking this news from the battle front uh, that either the Syrians are, have, have penetrated their defenses or they have pushed them out. So that's, he's not even thinking that he's going to be killed in a few minutes uh, or however long it takes. He's oblivious to Jehu's intentions. And um, <clears throat> with this word, a company of men, that Hebrew word speaks of like a flood of people. It's used elsewhere to speak of floods. So Jehu has a sizable force with him. Uh, verse 18. So the horsemen went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what have you to do with peace? Turn around, follow me. So the watchman reported saying, the messenger went to them, but he's not coming back. <laughs> this is comical almost. This, um, <clears throat> the first of eight mentions of peace, the first of five, is it peace in this chapter? Uh, again, the, the wicked are the ones that are pressing the question. Jehu says, close your mouth, you know nothing about what you're talking about, and get information. <laughs> what do you say to it, like a four-star general in your private, or a sergeant or something? He's like, aye, aye. And you don't want to mess with Jehu. Joram watching this, here's the other lookout say, the lookout say, well, the messenger you sent is now joined them. And he goes, hmm. But he's still so arrogant. He has not a clue what's coming. Verse 19. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So same thing. Be quiet and get in line. That's an impressive character. He could have, you know, you would think, he said, well, No, I rep I'm the king, the king's representative. Is it peace? I have to take it. No, he doesn't do any of that. It's just, okay, he said, shut your mouth. You better shut your mouth. His hand is on that sword and his thumb is tapping it. Verse 20. <clears throat> so the watchman reported saying, huh. <laughs> he went up to them and it's not coming back. You lost two guys, king. Uh, he doesn't say that part. but And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. <laughs> Legendary. Uh, you got to so so after he gets this second guy with him, Jehu turns it on now, and he's just you know you can just see him whipping that team of horses on his chariot, uh, and this is before radial tires, so it's kind of tough guy man. Uh, anyway, uh, obviously his reputation of handling a cha chariot comes from the battlefield, and it portrays his character as a man of action and a man of means. I mean, you can want to do things, be a person of action, and don't know what you're doing. He knows what he's doing, verse 21. Then Joram said, make ready. And his chariot was made ready. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu and met him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Well, again, too arrogant to suspect that he was the target of Mr. Overthrow, his subordinate. He's going to be assassinated. It says he met him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So the land that 
He and Jezebel conspired to steal using God's law. Is never recognized by God or the righteous as being Ahab's land. It's still Naboth's land. And, and remember, not only was Naboth killed, all of his sons were killed also. Because they would be heirs. If he just was dead, then they would assume the land. So he had to get rid of them too. And that he did. Uh, so this was, incidentally, the stealing of Naboth's land was the initial reason for the curse on Ahab and Jezebel. But they did other stuff too. And so what we're looking at is prophecy in motion. If you were there that day, the prophecy is unfolding. And it's going to unfold over several days. Verse 22. Remember, the book of Revelation unfolds over seven years. And then there's life. <laughs> it's unfolding over centuries, millennium. Verse 22. Now it happened when Joram saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? So he answered, what peace? As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. Oh, man, talk about his mama. That's what he just did. Right to the king. Uh, this, is, this is, you know, you just want Jehu to be another King David. It's so close. So he rode all the way out there to ask him, well, it's, he's like a stubborn fool. You, you would think if he was a wise king, he would have said, you know what? I smell a rat here. You know, something's not right. My messengers aren't coming back. No, he, he and the two, you know, arrogant kings go flomping out there to, to the wrong guy. So he answers, what peace as long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel? He names her. And her witchcraft was so many. He calls her a witch. Blunt trauma to the mood. That's what I would say. Spiritual indictments. This is spiritual. He's not then saying, you know, she's stealing from the treasuries of the kingdom. That would have been a crime. She might have been doing that too. But he goes right to the spiritual crimes. The holotries refer to Jezebel's idolatrous worship that she imported through Ahab. Uh, but still, Jehu has this disposition that's more like Esau than David. He's just a man's man. And doesn't really go much farther. He's gotten too good at being capable of getting his will done. That's the majesty of the authority of Christ. A man under authority and therefore of authority. And that is something that should be attractive to us. Verse 23. Then Joram turned around and fled and said to Ahaziah, treachery Ahaziah. Oh, now they figure it out. Too late now. Uh, <laughs> so... Joram, let me ask you a question before this arrow pierces your heart from the back. Uh, it's treachery, treachery against you, because he's not loyal to you. But you've not been loyal to Yahweh. Is that treachery too? No, it doesn't work that way with evil. Evil's one-sided. Yahweh did not deserve the disloyalty that uh, his subjects were devoted to showing him. And that's what this is all about. All of this is about that very thing. There were other kings and other nations that weren't being troubled this day, this way. These two were because of their unfaithfulness. We'll get to at the end why I think it took 15 years to execute this. But verse 24. Now Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoram, which is Joram, the king of the north, between the arms. And the arrow came out his heart, and he sank down in his chariot. I bet he did, the coup de grace. 
That's done. Without hesitation, full intent to kill, instant kill. And Joram got the point. And somebody walked over and looked and said, look at that, right in the bullseye. You couldn't ask for a better shot. Uh, when it says he drew in full strength, somebody's eyes caught that. Somebody saw the face on, on Jehu when he pulled, strung that bow and let that thing go. And he said, he pulled that thing back with all he had. And he got the target just like that. Verse 25. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, pick him up, and throw him into the track of field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that Yahweh laid this burden upon him. So Jehu, Jehu has this epiphany. The lights turn on. I remember this. He doesn't say it that way because it's not his style. He says to Bidkar, who again came up in the ranks with him as a high-ranking officer now with Jehu. <clears throat> he says, remember we were there when Elijah came out and said, you know, this was going to happen. The great prophet said it would be so, and it is so, and neither one of us knew at the time we were just low-ranking officers then. You know, we were lieutenants or something. And now, here we are, part of the prophecy itself. And he attributes these events to the fulfillment of God's word. And yet, he will be disloyal to Yahweh nonetheless. Evil, it it reaches a point where there is no explanation. You know, criminologists can try, but they can only go up to a point you can go no further. There's no explanation except it is demonic. You're dealing with spiritual forces that are smarter than you. They are evil, and they must be dealt with. I mean, who can explain the evil that the Japanese unleashed on the Pacific in the Second World War, and, of course, the Nazis uh, or Stalin. I mean, you just, it's the evil, the level. Stalin would wipe out whole villages for daring to criticize. Now, Mark Anthony, and they speak similar to Jezebel, when Cicero criticized in his speeches and writings Mark Anthony, they had him killed. Then they cut off his head and his hands, and they pinned the hands in the public you know, forum so everybody could see that's the hand that wrote against me. And gave his head to his wife, and it is said when she got the the, the cadaver, the head, and she pulled out the tongue and stuck, kept sticking it with her hairpin. What, who are these people? Freedom of speech wasn't something that they were very interested in. Uh, wickedness. It is uh, something that we are we are in spiritual war, and we shouldn't be surprised when it behaves like war. Verse twenty-seven. But when Ahaziah saw. Uh, pardon me, when Ahaziah, king of Israel, king of Judah, let me slow it down. But when Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road to Beth Hagan. So Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Ger, which is by Ibleam, when he fled to Megiddo and died there. Some people pronounce these in Megiddo and I think they show off some of them. I don't know. My way is right for me. Uh, anyway, uh, I, Jehu doesn't fire this arrow. Had he fired it, it would, it would have been probably a, a kill. But it's not an instant kill. Uh, but he felt obligated. The moment lended itself to, the, to him, and he knew he had to strike. 
Ahaziah also. They shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblium. This is a major trade route. In fact, there's a movie, The Kingdom of Heaven, I think, and one of the crusaders, he's, he, gets, he inherits Iblium, and, but it's on a trade route, and that's a, a major defending point. The, that's where the roads were. So whoever did the playwright for that also knew their, re, did their research. Uh, so anyway, uh, and I believe will lead to Samaria. Samaria leads to Jerusalem, and he's trying to get back home. It says, then he fled to Megiddo and died there. Well, um, he, again, doesn't die instantly. He makes it to Samaria, 13 miles up, uh, north again. Uh, no, actually, it's south. But then he gets caught. He, he, Jehu's men catch him there. We pick this up in Second Chronicles 22, verse 9. Then he searched for Ahaziah after he was wounded, and they caught him. He was hiding in Samaria and brought him to Jehu. When they had killed him, they buried him because they said, He is the son of Jehoshaphat and sought Yahweh with all his heart. That is, Jehoshaphat sought Yahweh. So they, they eventually get him back to Jerusalem, his corpse, and they bury him because of Jehoshaphat, not because of himself. Which to me is like, well, he shouldn't get in then. <laughs> He's disqualified. But anyway, uh, this um, uh, is just how it happened. Um, so Jehu, who's traveling around, he goes to Ramoth Gilead, he comes to you know Jezreel, and he heads down to Samaria, and he ends up in Megiddo, and then he comes back to Jezreel, and that's where he's going to encounter Jezebel. But now we're at verse 28. And his servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in the tomb with his fathers in the city of David. So that is just a follow-up follow there. Um, had he not joined up with Ahab on that day, he would have still been doing evil in Jerusalem. But don't worry, Athaliah, we'll get some of her in, I think, chapter 11. She is just as much a witch as Jezebel. Verse 29, in the 11th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah became king over Judah. Verse 30, now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. Well, a lot going on. Verse 29, uh, a lot of discussion about the dates, but they're easily satisfied because there's different methods of counting. Not going to go any further into that. Here in verse 30, uh, he arrives. Jezreel is where Joram was when he sent out the messengers. Is it peace? So clearly, Jehu does not go back to Jezreel. Go, ends up uh, likely Megiddo where they finish off Ahaziah. And then he comes back to Jezreel where Jezebel is. And so he goes Ramoth Gilead to Beth Hagen, the ascent of Gur, Megiddo, back to Jezreel. What's happening with the Syrians up there in Ramoth Gilead? Well, they're going to they're gonna do a lot of damage to the Jews because God is using them to judge the Jews, even under uh, Jehu. Had Jehu been righteous, though, the, the Syrians would have been beaten back, but he he failed. Well, uh, so he comes back. We don't know how much time. Could have been a day or two. Could have been hours. But he ends up coming back to Jez, to Jezreel. And Jezebel, it says here in verse 30, Jezebel heard of it. 
And she put paint on her eyes. Now she knows her son, Joram, has been shot through the heart and is dead. She probably also knows he caught up with Ahaziah and killed him too. Rather than flee, she takes the time to decorate herself. She has places she can go. She can go back up to to Sidon where her father is or was, her family was. But she's going to taunt Jehu. She adorns her eyes with the dark-eyed eye of the day. This was something that the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Medes, the Persians, and those living in the Bronx would uh, practice. And they would uh, spread it on both the upper and lower eye, would accentuate the eye, would give it a brilliance that wasn't natural. And, you know, um, Islam talks about their dark-eyed beauties. Well, it has something to do with that. Certainly no promotion of Islam. But... It's just the historical, for the historical content. Ezekiel even mentions this. He speaks of just the uh, loose living of Israel. He says, you washed yourself, metaphorically, uh, for them, painted your eyes and adorned yourself with ornaments, trying to be alluring uh, to, to, to the evil spirits. Ultimately, it was what it was. But why the painted face? Is what, you know, you could say. She's painting her face around the eyes. Did she know that Jehu would kill her and she did not want to be caught dead without her makeup? She's vain enough, but she's also very cunning and not very loving. Did she suppose that Jehu would look at her beauty and it would charm him and he would say, you know what, I was going to kill you, but you know what, you just look, you look actually pretty hot. And I'm not. Well, some of that's there. She is in her 50s at this point. And we know that because she has a grandson that's 23 years old. We get that in uh, verse 26. Anyway, um, Cleopatra was in her 40s when Mark Anthony fell in love with her. And my point is, you know, beauty's in the eyes of the beholder, and especially when you have that much money and wealth, you can pamper yourself. And, you know, you're not out in the fields working. You remember the Song of Solomon? You know, she, the, the sun had beaten her. And she, the Bible says she was dark and lovely because she's out in the fields working and her brothers are probably sitting back playing cards. So anyhow, that's a whole story by itself. So she is arrogant, vain, cunning enough to attempt to captivate Jehu. I think that's possible. I think the easy answer is she's just vain and arrogant. And like her son, felt that she was just untouchable. Nobody's going to hurt her. It's up to, you know, the jury's still out. I think it's a combination of both. Because it says she adorned her head. So she fixed her hair. Her outward beauty meant everything to her. Because inside she was a monster. She was Medusa on the inside. And so she's like, you know, she's got her hairdo up, fresh makeup. You know, why else would she do this? Um, spiritually, she serves as a model against those who decorate only the outside. And Peter talks about being careful about that instead of uh, dedicating themselves on the inside. And it says, and look through a window. She couldn't help herself. She couldn't keep a low profile. She just could not keep her mouth shut and just say, don't tell them I'm home. Any sane person would have just done that. But she's going to pull on Leroy Brown's cape, man, and he's going to, verse 31, then Jehu entered the gate, and she said, is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? What is she thinking? 
He can take her down and torture her. You know, cut off the nose first, then work on the ears. <laughs> he can do all sorts of stuff. <clears throat> Sixty years earlier, Zimri killed his king. He was a subordinate to uh, Elah. And he killed him so he could become king. And so she is saying, she's had time to think of this. So that's why it's not like after he, he kills Joram, he, she, he runs back to see. Just some time has, has elapsed. She's had time to make this connection. Now, Zimri was only king for seven days. And so she's saying the fate of that king killer is your fate. I don't know what tone she's using, but the words aren't good. I don't even know if he cared what she said. I don't, and he certainly didn't care how she looked. He just decided she needed to go. She's part of the, the license to kill from God. And he, he wasn't like Zimri killing his master to be king. He was told to do this. And so her bold taunt, Zimri murdered his master and reigned. And look what happened to him. It's going to happen to you. That is a very big possibility. Or what she, she's trying to say, yeah, you, you, know, you, you did the same thing that Zimri did, but I'm good with this. And you, I could pre, be of help in your kingdom because she was cunning. He was not the man to, to provoke. And, uh, the, by, you know, who, who would even talk to the man who just killed two kings, one of them her son? Arrogance. Arrogance breeds stupidity. It's, if you are arrogant and ignorant, well, you're just a problem all the time. But if you are intelligent and arrogant, at some point you're going to make a big blunder. And probably everybody doesn't like you anyway. Anyway, whether she's flirting with him her son's killer as a ploy, uh, or is she just, uh, you know, doesn't want to be caught without her makeup on? Verse 32, and he looked out, he looked up at the window and said, who's on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him. I love this part. I think you do too. This is where we should have music. Uh, he, he couldn't care about her makeup and hairdo. Jehu had to ask twice, evidently, because there must have been some hesitation. These were servants, and they were emasculated servants, and they didn't know what to do, what side to choose yet. Still, she was still the queen mother, uh, and, but that's going to unravel, instantly unravel. So he says twice, who is on my side? Hesitation, who? Second point. They had to have pushed by her if they're looking out the same window, <laughs> At that point, they made the decision, we're on his side, and pushed her aside. So two or three eunuchs looked out. Well, that would be enough to lift her out and toss her while she's struggling to not be lifted up and tossed. She's probably yelling and fussing at them, and they don't hear a word. Verse 33, then he said, throw her down. That's so nonchalant. You know, like he's eating a sandwich. Oh, by the way, throw her down. It's just, a, this is wonderful. Uh, so they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. I don't think she saw it coming. Um, as, as her arrogant son, I, I again, however high up she was, her impact made a bloody splash. She hit the right way to create the blood. That splatter of blood would excite the dogs all by the scavenger dogs all by itself. But then Jehu who's a master at uh, charioteer, he excites the horses to trample her. 
to finish her off. Revelation 18.24, speaking of Babylon, that representation of humanity against God, encapsulated in Babylon, and there were other details too, but overall, spiritual Babylon is all about evil. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and of all who were slain on the earth. Well, she, in a microcosm, she is that. She was the anti-Yahweh, the spiritual harlot of Israel, just like spiritual Babylon is the harlot of the world. And so there is that type and fulfillment, anti-type. And he trampled her underfoot, deliberate. This was deliberately done. He knew how to maneuver those war horses. They knew how to kick and trample. They're trained to do that. And, uh, you know, so you ever see horses when they're about to race at a, at a professional track? They, they can get pretty nasty with each other. <laughs> Some of them are so pumped up. They're trying to attack the horse in the next stall, and they're trying to keep them away from each other. Horses, they're big. They have big heads. Anyway, that's why you don't see them with hats too much. I, I think you need to watch more cartoons. Anyhow, where am I? So over 15 years, as I mentioned, passed since this doom is now finally taking place. And why does God wait so long to rid the land of the wicked, especially a wicked person like her? Well, the people that were under that government, they deserved such a wicked queen mother and queen. They turned on Yahweh and they relished the fake gods that she brought in. So God let them live with it. You know, you, you get the, the government you deserve kind of a thing. He allowed them their due. But in time, it was like, okay, that's enough. Many righteous paid with their lives under her and Ahab and Joram and Ahaziah. Because the curse is real. The curse from Eden is real. And... Uh, God would reward them. All right, well, we're going to kind of blow right through this next session. There's not a lot here. And when he had, well, a little bit more. And when he went in, ate and drank, verse 34, then he said, go now and see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So he has disdain for her, but her position as a princess, he is, uh, you know, making mention of. He has no remorse for his actions. They're not necessary. All his targets were evil. He knew that. As far as this goes, his conscience was clear. God's instrument, he was. The sight of her mangled body did not cause him to lose his appetite. And he tramples her and says, oh, I'm getting something to eat. <laughs> that's what he does. I mean, that's not recommended. I'm not, uh, I'm not this is how it was. Um, so anyway, his command to bury her opposes what he was told, that she'll not be buried. But his command will go flat. And verse 35 will point that out. There won't be enough of her to bury so they're just going to chuck it into the field, the, the head, the hands, and, and the feet. And verse 35, so they went to bury her, but they found no more than her skull and her feet and the palms of her hands. Even the dogs, they all had their limits, you know, okay, I can't take any more of this. <laughs> well, you know, of course, the, the, we have, don't have much time, but the head, that's where the, 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 the thoughts are. The decisions are finalized. The hands are the actions that uh, act on the orders from the head. And the feet, her stance, 
Uh, her, where she stood in life was unfit for scavenger dogs. What she put her hands to was unfit for scavenger dogs. And the way she thought was unfit for scavenger dogs. That's the point. I, I see that. Verse 36. Therefore they came back and told him. And he said, this is the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying on the plot of ground Je- at Jezreel, Dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. Um, And yet he remains an enigma. Verse 37. And the corpse of Jezebel, he's still talking, shall be as refuse on the surface of the field in the plot of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, here lies Jezebel. You know, they didn't want to say, here lies Ben Laden. They just, you know, at an undisclosed place, they dumped him into the sea. And here... uh, that no one's going to be able to say, you know, let's go put flowers on her, t- her grave. There's no grave. They, they just said, well, this is what was said on the surface of the field. So they threw the remains out there and they let the insects uh, finish it off, I, I presume. Or maybe scavenger birds or whoever, whatever. But remember the pa- painted face of Jezebel. Remember Lot's wife. Remember their end. She tried to bring up Zimri and say, look at his end. You know, he turned on his master too. Six days as king. Didn't work out well for him. That was her point. God comes along and overrules her and says, remember you and your painted face and your hairdo. It didn't do anything for you. We close with this. Revelation 2.20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. God is saying, I don't forget these kind of people, and neither should we. Let's pray. Our Father, um, some of these stories are just so exciting and fascinating. And yet, may we not be so entertained by the fact and the history of the matter to lose a spiritual message that you have for us Every time you speak, there's something to your glory and our benefit. May we pick up on that and act with it. May it get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.